When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome. In today's episode, I will be talking with Dr. Marta Perez. Dr. Perez is a board-certified OBGYN and assistant professor of OBGYN at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, where she works as a laborist, exclusively taking care of pregnant patients admitted to the hospital. She has a passion for direct public education on social media and can be found on Instagram and YouTube, providing evidence-based educational topics about pregnancy, birth, postpartum, contraception, sexual health, and more. She enjoys everything fitness, reading, spending time with her husband and dog, and being a new mom. In today's episode, we will be addressing OB complications and how to reduce our anxiety surrounding those. We will talk about complications during pregnancy, during labor and birth, and postpartum. Let's dive right in. Good morning, Dr. Perez. How are you today? We're so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. This is so fun. So it sounds like we have another little guest here, don't we? We do. We have my eight-week-old Paul, (laughs) who is such a happy guy in the mornings, which is when we're recording right now, because he gets to hang out with me all night by not sleeping. (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) It is wonderful. But like we were just chatting about before this, it's something that you're going to miss. And I already miss, I swear. I mean, you know, Maggie's going to be what, eight? Oh my gosh, she's going to be eight months this week. And it's like... I don't know. I already miss how big she is. She's so big. I'm like, how do how do they grow this fast? And I just miss that like cuddle phase, you know? I know. The first few minutes when he wakes up, I'm like, no way. It's only been two hours. And you just kind of have that like, ugh, I want to yeah. sleep. But then yeah. the minute he's like in my arms and stuff, I'm like, okay, we, we're snuggling. This is fine. <laughs> and you know that position where like you can just be laying down on the couch or like in a chair and you can just put them right on your chest, like belly to belly. And they yeah. just like, kind of like just cozy up in there. Oh, oh my, my gosh, God, I know. that's the best. That's the best. I miss that the most, I think, because now I try to cuddle her and she's like, uh, what are we doing here? She's like, I'm too busy. <laughs> I don't have time for this. I have other things I want to do. Anyways, enjoy it because it's, I feel like it's just so fleeting. So I'm excited today. We are going to be talking about OB complications, you know, whether that's during pregnancy, during birth, maybe even some things um, that might happen postpartum and just how to reduce our anxieties overall. I know there are many moms that had submitted questions saying, you know, I I had preeclampsia with my first, I'm really, really, really nervous with the second go around. Um, you know, how can I reduce my anxiety surrounding that? And yeah, I'm excited to chat with you about this today. Yeah, me too. So let's start off with, I think it would be great to kind of talk about maybe even each step of pregnancy. So maybe during pregnant pregnancy and then during 
birth, what can happen, and then maybe even some things postpartum that might happen that are that are what you see most frequently yeah. um, as far as complications go. If we can start off with what could happen during pregnancy, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when this is one of my favorite topics to discuss because I really see a lot of kind of polarization in, I guess, the social media world or society about complications in pregnancy. On one hand, like you said, there's a lot of worry, anxiety, and fear about some diagnoses that are very common that if they're severe can be life-threatening, but if they're mild and routine, we really are so good at managing them now. Mm -hmm. They're what I do every single day, which we'll talk about. And on the other side, we have this huge misconception that birth should be something natural, that nothing should go wrong. And if it does, it was probably something you did to cause it or didn't do to prevent it in your pregnancy, which is just not true at all. And, you know, there's the reality is that there are some complications, like I said, that are very, very common that before we had modern medicine could have been life-threatening that can be very run the gamut from being a mild complication to very scary. And, you know, we do have higher than we would expect for a developed country maternal mortality in this country, but it's mostly due to the healthcare disparities that we've made as humans. Right. You know, we we've caused those. So it's just kind of interesting to see the the big differences there. I really like BBC shows and like period pieces. And there's one called Victoria. It's on Amazon Prime about Queen Victoria. And she was terrified to get pregnant because her aunt had died during childbirth. Oh, that's interesting. And now I see people sometimes who think that any complication is the fault of a a mother or there's no room for any type of complication or like labor dystocia causing C-section. It's all like your fault if that happens to you. And so somehow we completely lost the middle ground between, you know, 200 years ago and today. So I like talking about this stuff because I want to restore that middle ground. Complications are common, but they don't mean that like, they're not all life-threatening. Right. I love it. Sorry, that was my little like intro, and I no, don't I know if I addressed what you asked me. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, you're also not sleeping, and you also have a baby, and you have things going on. So I think that's perfectly okay. Um, no, I think that that's no, that's a great kind of lead into all of this. So, what are the most common things that you see during pregnancy that can be complications that are kind of just middle of the road that we don't necessarily need to really worry about? I would say probably the most common one is going to be a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Mm -hmm. And this one is, again, riddled with a lot of self-blame for people. So gestational diabetes is caused when the hormones from the placenta, which are pumping out human growth hormone and insulin um, like peptide, they cause your body to be resistant enough to insulin that you have some higher blood sugars. And so we test this by giving a huge sugar load, everyone's favorite glucola drink, or you could ask your doctor if you use something else, if you can't tolerate that and see what the body, how the body handles that big old insulin load. And if you, that's the initial test. And if it's too high on that one, you go on to doing a three hour one, which is even a bigger glucose load and four checks of the blood sugar to diagnose it. And you can be the fittest, healthiest person and your placenta can still pump out enough hormones that you get gestational diabetes. Yes. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah totally. I have tons of friends and I've diagnosed tons of patients who are, you know, do 
every health promoting behavior that I would recommend that someone does and they get it anyway. And it's not a blame or health issue. Now, if you already had insulin resistance going into your pregnancy because you mostly were sedentary and you maybe didn't eat the healthiest, then you're going to be that insulin resistance doesn't go away and it Mm -hmm. could worsen. So, you know, if, but it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong if you get it. You know, everyone has opportunities to do health promoting behavior, which is great, but we shouldn't then say something's wrong with me or I didn't do something that I should have been doing if I do get gestational diabetes. So I'd say that's the most common one. And well-managed gestational diabetes, meaning actually taking your blood sugar, doing medicines, if that's what your doctor recommends. When you take care of your gestational diabetes, the rate of increased complications is a lot lower than people who get their gestational diabetes and, and aren't able to care for it well and maybe don't come to the doctor or forget their blood sugars most days, only take them a few days, et cetera. So we try to help those people be better about taking care of it because good control matters. So what you do about gestational diabetes is really what makes the difference, not just whether you have it or not. It's not black and white. Yes. And now I'm just going to add in here too. I, so with my four babies, the first two, I had done the the glucose drink and all the, you know, I ended up failing the one hour test with my second, had to do the three hour test. And then with my third, I ended up doing some random jelly bean thing, which they don't do anymore. And then with my fourth, I was like, I really don't want to do the drink. And so they were like, no, that's totally fine. You know, and I got this glucometer and all I did was just check my sugars four times, four times a day for two weeks, which sounds really horrible, which, you know, at first I was like, oh, this is such a pain, but I got to be honest, like I kind of liked it. I was like, this is so interesting because here's the thing. With my fourth baby, I was the fittest I had been with any of my pregnancies, hands down. Like I had done orange theory leading up to it and I was like, oh, I feel so fit. And that was the pregnancy that I actually had some issues with my sugars where in the beginning, my sugars were kind of like all over the place the first couple of days. And I was like, oh boy. And so I, I actually ended up altering the way I was eating and making sure I was balancing out with like net carbs and everything. And overall, just being healthier with what I was eating and my sugars were totally fine for those last like, you know, eight, nine days that I was checking my sugars. But I feel like it's, it's good because it, it kind of like resets you like, oh, okay. Like, you know, maybe you were eating a lot of whatever you could find in the first trimester because you were nauseous and you just kind of like got off to a bad start. And then, you know, you end up doing these, these finger sticks. And I was like, wow, I'm learning. I'm learning so much about all of this too. And I just thought it was so interesting. And it just goes to show you, you could be really fit. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You could be so fit and it just doesn't matter. I was totally like, I could only eat carbs in the first trimester too. I actually loved the taste of the glucola. Like I loved it. And mine was cold when I drank it, which I think made a big difference. Oh, that makes a difference. Yeah, it does. No, it does. I loved it. It has to be like super duper cold. Yeah, I actually really, I really liked it, but I probably, it would have been interesting for me to see probably what it was. I think a good example too, of how much like you don't have control the hormones do is in my type one diabetic patients, you know, everyone's um, type one diabetes is going to be different too in their bodies and just how many islet cells they still have left and blah, blah, blah. But I have some of those type one diabetics who like, they are so in tune with their body. They know what foods are going to cause what glucose spikes. They know their insulin regimen by heart. They can predict what's going to happen based on what they're eating or how they're feeling. Um, Not everyone's like that when they're type one, but some are. 
and I have those type of type ones, just pregnancy is so hard for them. They're like, I am all over the place. I can never predict anything. Like it one day I'll eat something and I'll expect it to do X to my blood sugar and it does Y. And so the next week I'll eat the same exact thing and I'll expect it to do Y because I learned from last week and it will do Z. And I don't understand all of it. And so that just really shows that it's totally the hormones. Absolutely. Like I, I tell people all the time, you just do what you have with what you've been given, but there's like not a there's not a place for self-blame around it at all. And I think I just I get so frustrated when I when I see that. And plus yeah. it can be really hard for some people who are on like, you know, night shifts and work weird hours to like take their blood sugars at this, these certain oh times when they have like crazy schedules. I know. I know. So one thing that came up a lot was preeclampsia. So I thought maybe it would be great for you to kind of differentiate between, well, first of all, just defining what preeclampsia is and then who's at risk for developing preeclampsia and then kind of the difference between preeclampsia and then eclampsia. Yeah. So preeclampsia is one of those things that is sort of, um, it's part of what makes it difficult to understand is the vocabulary around it. And the reason behind the vocabulary being complex and a little bit difficult to understand is historical context. When we used to not have all advanced labs and vital sign monitoring, we went by the only things that doctors could see, which was eclampsia, which is having a seizure. And then the preeclampsia was something that was leading up to that when they started to understand that blood pressures were high once people started managing blood pressures or testing protein in the urine, they would see that. Um, So to kind of give that context, that's why it's hard to understand. Preeclampsia is better kind of called one of the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So those are the terms I like to use because that encompasses kind of everything in this very diverse, complicated, somewhat mysterious syndrome. So it's very common. Estimates are really wide ranging because it used to be very underdiagnosed and we are better about monitoring and diagnosing it now. So the likelihood of having it depends on a few different things, but one of the biggest factors is that your first pregnancy, you're going to be much more likely to have it mm-hmm. than second, third pregnancies. We don't fully know the reason behind that, but for first pregnancies, it can be anywhere about 10 to 15%. And then we see in subsequent pregnancies, it tends to be less than 5%. Huh. So that's the biggest risk factor is just the first time you're pregnant, right? Nothing mm-hmm. you did just by being pregnant for your first time. <laughs> yeah, And The origin behind preeclampsia, what we're finding out more and more is that it has to do with these complex interactions between the placenta and the maternal blood vessels. So in biology, our cells have limits, right? Our liver can't go and become our uterus. And there are some cells that have a bunch of potential, but generally they're stuck in one way and they're only able to control certain things that they do. But that goes awry in something like cancer. Cancer can grow out of control. And part of how it can grow out of control is that it can recruit blood vessels from the tissue that it's in and rewire them to feed itself. And the only other type of cells that do that is the placenta, which is pretty amazing. And so when they're nestling in and growing to nurture a fetus in the maternal uterus, they're taking over the maternal blood vessels and they want to open them up and and interact with them in a way that gives enough nourishment to grow the fetus. If they open them up too much, then there's additional bleeding, you know, which can be something very minor spotting or for people like it can be abruptions and subchronic hemorrhages, et cetera, which are very common in the first trimester. 
And that can put the pregnancy at risk if there's too much bleeding. But if they don't open them up enough, then we don't get the nutrition that we need for the pregnancy and the blood flow for the pregnancy. And so they use these complex chemical messengers to try to regulate maternal blood vessels. But at some point that goes awry. And typically it goes awry at the end of pregnancy close to the due date. In very extreme situations, it can definitely go awry earlier, which is a more severe form of preeclampsia. And what's very, very interesting is even though usually the effects of these chemicals goes away after delivery, in some people, it presents for the first time days or weeks after having a baby, which we don't fully understand. So it's all these chemical messengers that are trying to control maternal blood vessels that make them clamp down too much, raising blood pressure. So that's kind of like the background. And like I said, there's a whole range of symptoms. So the most minor form of a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy is gestational hypertension. And basically that means your blood pressure is higher than it should be, over 140, over 90, on two separate occasions, at least four hours apart. But it hasn't affected any of your other organs. You don't have a horrible headache. Your kidneys are fine. There's no protein in the urine. It's just the first sign that, oh, this this syndrome is starting to take its hold and you have a very mild form. If you've already reached 37 weeks with gestational hypertension, then the baby is mature enough that we don't want to risk maternal health of it worsening. And so the recommendation is delivery. Or if it's found after that, then and you're beyond 37 weeks, then we just say, okay, it's time to have a baby. And so induction is recommended. Sometimes, if not caught, gestational hypertension can progress to preeclampsia, but sometimes it can present right at the first time with preeclampsia. So it's not that somebody missed gestational hypertension, it just presents severely at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And just using the word preeclampsia is the high blood pressure plus the protein in the urine. Um, But preeclampsia can be what we used to call mild, now it's preeclampsia, without severe features. So it's just some protein and the mild blood pressures, but it can also be severe. So severe preeclampsia is where we're getting into some of the scary stuff. The blood pressures are even higher above 160 over 110 diastolic, which can put you in a range that puts your brain at risk and the blood vessels and the placenta at risk as well and starts to injure things like the liver and we see elevated liver enzymes or perhaps pain there. We see protein in the urine, but we also may see other damage to the kidneys. And then someone may have a really bad headache, which is their blood vessels in their brain trying to deal with these high blood pressures. So when we see that, we definitely recommend delivery if you've reached 34 weeks even. Although some people don't present with that till again, much later at a full term Mm -hmm. time. And at that point, we do start to worry about seizure eclampsia. With those high blood pressures, we can also worry about other bad effects like, you know, placental abruption where the placenta separates or getting pulmonary edema or stress on the heart, heart failure, and eclampsia. So treatment of that is delivery, but also magnesium, which is a medicine that goes, it's just the magnesium, like a lot of people take magnesium supplements, but it's through the IV and it's at high doses that make you feel pretty crappy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unfortunately. And it's continued the whole time you're in labor and also for 12 to 24 hours postpartum, which puts people in a bit of a haze, but it does a really good job at decreasing seizures, which is the whole point of it. Sometimes we have to use medicines to bring down the blood pressure too to safe ranges. And typically we monitor your blood pressure postpartum. And for many people, things get better almost immediately after delivery. For some people, it takes a few weeks or even months. And then for some people, they present with this for the very first time after they've already had a baby. Preeclampsia with severe features is kind of you know, one of the more common severe forms. And then eclampsia, having a seizure, luckily is rare. 
But again, some people present with that for the very first time. And then really other scary stuff like having a stroke or having heart failure or having the HELP syndrome, which is Mm -hmm. where your blood, the platelets in the blood are very low. Your liver has a high level of damage and typically blood pressures are very out of control. Those things are more rare. They happen. And that's what I spend time trying to surveil for and treat preeclampsia before it becomes those things. But we also see that too. So most people who have a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy are going to have the more mild forms, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, or even preeclampsia with severe features. But the importance of intervening on those things are that so we don't miss things that turn into HELP syndrome or eclampsia. Right, right, right. So I, you had touched on this very, very briefly, but I think it would be great to just do a minute or two on those because I feel like bleeding in the first trimester is, first of all, it's way more common than anybody realizes. Yeah. And I think uh, I bled with every single one of my pregnancies. And so, you know, and in the emergency room, that's like all we see as far yeah, as like exactly. quote unquote OB complications, it's always bleeding yeah. in the first trimester. And it can be obviously a variety of different you know, reasons as to why that might be happening. And it's not always necessarily miscarriage. Obviously, we always say this could be a miscarriage because it could, but we also don't always know exactly why there's bleeding. And I had bleeding in all different, you know, weeks. One was at five weeks, one was at eight weeks, one was at 12 weeks. And there can be so many different reasons for that. I had placenta previa with my, was it my second? Yeah, it was my second. Um, and I started bleeding while we were on a vacation at 13 weeks. And oh I God, was that's so stressful. myself, you know, like, <laughs> that's really stressful. I mean, beside myself and thank goodness, you know, I know a little bit where I was like, okay, you know, I don't think this is anything crazy. It's not like I was bleeding profusely. Okay. Like just try to assess the situation, but you know, it doesn't matter if you're in the medical field or not. You just, you, it's an automatic, just like, you know, you're just full blown anxiety. So I think maybe just touching on, a, you know, you said subcorneatic hemorrhage, placental abruption, that sort of thing, kind of just like briefly talking about those and kind of how common they, they can be in the, in the first trimester. Yeah, absolutely. They're, like you said, extremely common. I don't have like a number off the top of my head about the number of pregnancies that experience first trimester bleeding. But what's the hardest part of this diagnosis is one, it's very, very common and nobody's talking about it. And often maybe the person who's experiencing it hasn't told anyone else besides their immediate family that they're pregnant. So they're very scared with no ability to have more support during this unknown time. And as you experienced in the ER and I experienced as an OB, it, we really don't almost have great information for it to tell people, except wait and see if this turns out to be a miscarriage or not. Exactly. Which it depends on the gestational age, which in which the bleeding is happening. Just having some bleeding itself is not actually diagnostic of raising risk for having a miscarriage. So having a subcoronic hemorrhage and some people, not only do they have bleeding like one episode, one day, some people are bleeding for days or for weeks, Mm -hmm. which is really, you know, cumulatively very stressful, especially when you're not seeing the doctor, you know, more than every few weeks in those first few weeks. And it's hard to hear, well, we just have to wait and see if, you know, in three more weeks when you go to the doctor, if there's still a heartbeat, like it is so stressful to undergo. But the good news is that usually bleeding itself in isolation isn't associated with an increased risk of miscarriage. You know, some people have a miscarriage and they're not bleeding. We call that a missed Mm -hmm. miscarriage. And some people might go on to have miscarriage, but overall, if you take two people and they're both, let's say, had their first visit at eight weeks and things look good, and if one person starts bleeding at 10 weeks and the other one doesn't, they're not, they don't differ in their rates of having a miscarriage. It's definitely a stressful situation. And I think it's even magnified 
so much in our just our society right now to the stress over it. I mean, we approach childbearing with a lot more intention now than we did a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. But l- luckily, it's usually the hardest part of it too is the wait and see aspect. Like, I wish there was a test, a blood test I could do if I saw someone in the first trimester bleeding that would say, "Oh, this pregnancy is not going to make it," or "Oh, this right. is going to be totally I fine. Know. You can ignore it." And you can't. And so that's just the hardest part of having that conversation. Where you're like, well. It's it's not super bad because it won't raise the risk, depending on where the person is in pregnancy and if things look good at the time. But we just don't know. We'll just have to wait and see the rest of the first trimester what happens. And I don't know when the bleeding will stop. And I don't know if it'll come back or not. It's just so hard to have those conversations because the person's walking out of the door like of the office or no the ER answers. in a daze. In a daze. Like, yeah. oh, my God. What? Do, do doctors know anything? You know, like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. It is one of those things that's so frustrating. They're like, well, okay. I mean, is there uh, – the question I get asked a lot is, well, can you do anything to make the baby stay in? And I'm like, right. no, you there's literally nothing we can do. And they've studied that. Like there has been studies trying to see if like people who have a, you know, sometimes we call it a threatened abortion, which is a threatened miscarriage, which basically means we don't know if something's going to be a miscarriage or not. Um, and they've studied trying to do medications or trying to predict if it'll be a miscarriage by doing blood tests and stuff. And none of it is, none of it yeah. works. It's yeah. just a wait and see. Yeah, it's just so so hard and it's very nerve-wracking when you're when you're that person that's experiencing it for sure. So let's move into uh birthing your baby. What are the most common complications that you see as someone's delivering that may or may not lead to maybe even a C-section? Yeah, so I would say the most common one, I don't even like using the word that this is a complication because this is actually a normal part of trying to be a human being having a baby, the most common is going to be that your baby is not able to navigate the birth canal and you need a C-section, you know, like something like a labor dystocia or self-lopelvic disproportion, et cetera. Just like having to need a C-section when you didn't plan on having one with your head down baby. Again, I don't like to even call it a complication because we know that's normal. Humans have big heads and our babies don't navigate the birth canal very easily all the time. Or the placental or the cord is showing us that the baby can't do that in a healthful way. But besides that, I would say probably the most common is going to be one of those hypertensive disorders of pregnancy affecting your birth period, either being the reason you're induced or something that we pick up sometimes when during the labor process. I would say behind that probably is having what I would like to call like extra bleeding, even if it's not defined as a postpartum hemorrhage but needing maybe an additional medication for bleeding after the baby comes out. Um, and certainly then there's postpartum hemorrhage as well, which is if you lose more than a liter of blood by our best estimations mm-hmm. during either a C-section or a vaginal delivery. Infections can happen too. GBS is not an infection. It's like a normal part of the microbiome. So that's that's not an infection. I mean, when a mom during labor gets a fever and a high Mm -hmm. Um, heart rate and the baby has a high heart rate. And that's just from the uterus, the kind of the membranes around the baby getting infected. And that's nothing that somebody caused or somebody set themselves up for. It just happens. Usually we treat that with antibiotics and it is not necessarily any indication for a C-section. Although sometimes when everything's infected, your uterus isn't really as, as strongly contracting. It kind of gets tired and it's stressed out. And so sometimes it leads to C-section, but not in and of itself. Those are kind of the most routine things I manage day to day on the labor floor. 
Yeah. So, and I, I'm going to touch on a few things that you mentioned. So the first is GBS. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard like, you know, over on in my community on Instagram saying, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm freaking out. I was GBS positive. And so I, I, speaking from experience, I mean, I was positive for, with all four of my pregnancies and I'm like, out of all the things for you to worry about, trust me, this is the very, very, very least. This is literally, you get diagnosed and you do not even need to, like, you don't need to think about it anymore. Not even one more time. Until you go into labor. Right. Right. And so it's so funny because the story I always tell is, so with my fourth, okay, with my fourth, I get tested for GBS. I'm like, okay, the thing's positive. I don't even need the result. Yeah. Like, You're like, fine. I know it's positive. <laughs> Do you know, I go in there and they're like, it's negative. And I said, what? And they were like, it's negative. And I was like, I don't feel comfortable with this. <laughs> I was literally like, <laughs> like I do not feel comfortable with this. No, I don't. Because I was like, what if I'm not used to laboring at home once my water, so my water always breaks at home. It's just like how I am, yeah. just wh- how I do things. And I was like, no, I do not feel comfortable. Look, it was my water breaking at home and then laboring at home. What if it's like, oh my gosh, can you just double check? And so sure enough, she was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, you're definitely positive. And I was like, oh, thank gosh. <laughs> so it's it. so funny. So I always tell people like, oh my, I was like relieved when they told me I was GBS positive with my fourth, because I was like, I need everything to be the same and everything needs to yeah, just need to be the same as it was before. But there's literally no, I've never had an issue with it. Even with my first, I mean, I was in labor with her for ever days. And I just ended up getting another dose of penis. Like it was not a big deal, you know? Um, So I always try to tell moms like, please, like that's just not even something you need to give a second thought to. And then the postpartum hemorrhaging, I experienced that with both of my last um, pregnancies. And to be honest, one of the reasons that kind of like holds me back from ever, I mean, we're done for sure. <laughs> but um, one of those things I always have Shop in the back closed. of my head, because it is, it is a nerve wracking thing. When with my third, it was, it, it was controllable, you know, with the uterine massage, which that is, that is intense. Not fun. <laughs> yeah. Worst massage ever. Very intense. Um, and then, you know, the you know, straight casting and then of course the Pitocin and all these other things going on. But then with my fourth, I had even more bleeding and then they ended up giving me a suppository. And then I ended up getting a fever, which is a very compli- a common complication yeah. of that specific medication. And of course, during COVID. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh, come uh-huh. on. Yeah. So Marta, you could imagine me. I was just like, you got to be kidding me right now with this. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> so isn't this supposed to get easier the more I babies know. I have? Why? I know. And, it and that's another common, like, sort of misconception too. Like, even if you had an, an uncomplicated, I saw a quote the other day that said, uncomplicated pregnancy is a diagnosis made in hindsight. Yes. Meaning like you just never know what's going to happen until way after pregnancy is over. Yeah. But but like you can be totally healthy and one of these things can happen to you. I mean, we lose sight of the fact that like even though we're so good at dealing with these things, and I'm so glad more moms are talking about when something happens to them because I think birth became safer and medicalized. And in my opinion, yes, as an OBGYN doctor, over-medicalized in some ways. I completely see that. But I think also people stop talking about complications because it's supposed to be, we're supposed to have eliminated every complication, Mm -hmm. but they're still there and it's okay to talk about them, especially if it helps other people go into it knowing instead of having anxiety, just being like, okay, well, this is, there are things that can happen and I'm going to like trust my team and I hope they don't happen to me, but but we're going to be okay if they, yeah, yeah, if they do. 
And most hemorrhages are like that. Some are very scary. Postpartum hemorrhage is the leading cause of maternal mortality worldwide, but not in the United States because we are very good at managing it in this country. We have medicines similar to the ones you got. Some of them are shots too. There's a new medicine over the last like five years that a big study came out that you know helps. So we added another one, another tool to our toolbox in managing it. And hospitals have blood banks. So if you're losing too much blood, we can give you blood back. And I've had some very scary postpartum hemorrhages where someone is losing their entire blood volume, but we're giving it back to them at the same time. And we have all this technology of how to stop things. Like right before I went on maternity leave, actually, like that, not maternity leave, right before I went into, I broke my water early at home also at 34 weeks, right before that happened to me one night overnight, I had a really bad postpartum hemorrhage and I was managing this patient for the whole night and she is stable. She ended up doing well, thanks to high levels of interventions, lots of different doctors. She had an ICU stay. She ended up being fine, but it it was like one of those things that you walk out of it being like, this, if, if we didn't have modern medicine, this would have been completely catastrophic. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, she went home, I think day three or four from the hospital and ha- her blood counts, you know, we'd given her blood back and stuff. So they're just a mild anemia, but we are, that's hemorrhage is like one of those developed countries, more success rates because we actually can manage them really well. Right. Right. So what are some common things that you see within those first couple weeks postpartum that might be, you know, minor complications? So we'll probably discuss this in the intro, but I'm a general OBGYN and I've practiced full scope OBGYN, but right now I exclusively work in the hospital with patients who are being checked out in triage, having their baby or postpartum. So when I see my postpartum families, the number one thing I counsel, and I like to have this conversation with both the support person and the mother in the room is the most common thing that's going to happen is actually mental health concerns, right? Postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, looking back and having birth trauma, which is kind of a form of PTSD with birth. And that's the thing I want, we forget about sometimes. And almost every time I see postpartum depression or anxiety, I'm diagnosing it after someone has been suffering and not asking for help. So I really had started incorporating it so much earlier, trying to get people to surveil for it. And half the time I see it, it's because someone said, I've been suffering, but I'm fine. But my partner said I had to call you. Mm-hmm. And we talk for a while and I'm like, your symptoms are consistent with postpartum depression. So I like to have this conversation with the partners too, because they're often the ones saying, please get help. You're not yourself. So rates for postpartum depression and anxiety and stuff are about, you know, published is about one in eight. I think that's an underestimate. I think yeah, they're probably sure. closer to one. In, yeah. One in yeah. five, one in six. I mean, with COVID, it's going to be even higher. I mean, the isolation for postpartum families right now. I mean, I'm experiencing it. Yeah. It's, um, it's yeah, it was it's hard. Difficult. Yes. <laughs> the lack of sleep, the hormones. I mean, it's something that's not your fault, but when you're having trouble enjoying this time, that's supposed to be very special and is the thought is if I'm not enjoying this, it's because I'm not a good parent. And that's just not at all, not at all what's happening. You know, it's brain neurotransmitter stuff you can't control. So I'd say that's like the biggest thing. And then behind that are some things that usually we don't see a ton of complications postpartum. Sometimes if, you know, bleeding is normal in the first six weeks, if it continues after that, or it's super heavy, sometimes there's a part of the placenta that didn't want to come out there's not really a way to diagnose that at birth unless you were already concerned about that. But most of the time it's not, you know, I look at placentas, they look intact. And then sometimes we'll see a little bit of membranes or placenta was stuck later. Like I said, hypertensive disorders or preeclampsia can happen afterwards. So if you start feeling 
not right in some ways, especially bad headaches. I always want my families to call. And some people can get infections after birth. That's going to be less common with vaginal deliveries, a little more common with C-sections because it's a major surgery. So any you know redness around the incision, um, fevers, et cetera, are going to definitely need a phone call. Yes. So I know you mentioned birth trauma can follow an emergency or complication of pregnancy. So can you just define exactly what birth trauma is and what to do if someone thinks they might have it? Yeah. So it doesn't have a really formal diagnosis yet, which I think is actually a good thing because I don't like to box it into one one thing. I'm really interested in this. I've talked a lot about it on my Instagram and have a highlight on it. I like to kind of talk about it as any experience of during the birth process that causes distress afterwards in a way that's difficult to cope. Things like flashbacks, perseveration and stress, things that cause a new kind of phobia or anxiety. It has similar characteristics with PTSD. So, but it, I don't think it, we can exclusively limit limit it to PTSD. And what I think most providers are aware of with birth trauma is that, you know, if you have one of those big hemorrhages, like I was talking about, you need the ICU, you need procedures where, you know, doing, you lose half your blood volume. That seems like an obvious trigger for birth trauma, but it can also be any, something that maybe isn't a medical emergency. A, some people have birth trauma from you know, I had planned to get an epidural and my labor was so fast that I wasn't able to get one. I went to the hospital and had a baby right away. And that, that was traumatic. Or some people definitely have birth trauma around an expectation for birth that didn't go the way they wanted it to be, or their birth went fine, but their baby had a complication, needed care by the pediatricians or the NICU instead of being able to do skin to skin and be in the room with you and stuff. So definitely can I don't like to set the expectation of provider as defining the trauma. I like the patient to be able to define the trauma because it it's something that one person may look at and say, that's not traumatic, but it was birth trauma for that person. Yes. And another person, similarly, the opposite way. I've had patients who have been through some of the scariest things I've ever seen. I see them at their postpartum visit and they're like, they're, <laughs> they're not having right. PTSD around it. Yeah. Which it's all so complex. So I don't like to define it based on like one emergency. I think that definitely having a OB emergency can set you up for having birth trauma for sure, but even some minor things can result in birth trauma as well. So it's any, you know, thing that's causing a lot of distress, flashbacks, difficulty sleeping, things that get triggered and cause a lot of anxiety or low mood, thinking about the birth, et cetera. And it can make a lot of women hesitant to approach pregnancy another time as well. Yeah. yeah. I think that's so interesting that you said that too, that it really varies, you know, and you have the patient define it because, and just another little personal experience here that I think, like you said, the more we talk about it, the more we kind of normalize things. And for me with my fourth this was like one of those things where I fully expected everything to go the way the other three experiences went and it didn't at all. I mean, I went into, I went in at 38 weeks to my appointment. And of course with COVID you're by yourself, you don't get to bring a partner. And, you know, I went into my appointment and, you know, first thing straight off the bat, they're like, your blood pressure is high. And I'm like, what? First time my blood pressure has ever been high in all of my pregnancies. So now I'm freaking out, of course. And I'm like, okay, they're like, okay, we're going to do it after. We'll do it after just to recheck it. I was like, okay. So I'm like trying to calm myself down. And then they put the monitor on the baby just to check her out, you know, and she's in an arrhythmia. Oh, <laughs> uh, which one? My Maggie, my fourth one. She was, she was in trigeminy yeah. and 
they, they put the, they put the uh, monitor on and I was like, what? We both looked at each other. I looked at the midwife and yeah. she looked at me and I was like, what is that? <laughs> because I wasn't expecting it, obviously. And she looked at me and she was like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? Oh, and she's like, okay, we're going to just send you in. You know, she's trying to, you know, she's, she's calm. She's just like, I'm not really sure what could be going on, but the heart rate was like over 200. You know, it was just a disaster in my personal opinion, because I was like, so taken back. I didn't have anybody with me. I had to drive myself to the hospital to be admitted. And so that to whole get a thing fetal was echo. traumatic. So when I got admitted in there, they they decided not to do it. They they were like, okay, let's just give you some fluids and see what happens because I was going, the baby was going in and out of it, in and out of the arrhythmia. And so they were like, let's just give a bunch of fluids. Maybe you're dehydrated, which it certainly was. Um, and the heart rate ended up coming down to like 190. And they're like, okay, that's great. But she, her arrhythmia was still there pretty much the entire time. But I was also hypertensive. And obviously, Marta, I was hypertensive. I'm like, do people, I'm, of course I'm going to have a high blood pressure. I'm like freaking out over here. <laughs> but all that to say, I ended up, you know, having to deliver her because I was hypertensive and all that good stuff. But it didn't go the way that I wanted it to for my last pregnancy. And I still get emotional about this. Like I'm getting teary eyed talking about it. It is just, it's, and it's not, it's, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't define it as like birth trauma, but it certainly was extremely traumatic Disappointing. for me. Yeah. And yes. And you're allowed to have those feelings. And those feelings are something that you should talk through with whoever you feel comfortable. And it could be something yeah. so simple. It could be, listen, I really wanted to have a vaginal birth and I didn't, you know, like that is something that can be really traumatic for people. And so anyways, I just really like that you said that because I just think it's not normalized enough that you can have these feelings no matter what. And and you shouldn't feel like they're not valid just because, you know, somebody had a, a more traumatic, quote unquote, traumatic experience than you did, you know? Yeah. So I think that that's really important. I absolutely think it should be talked about more too, because I'm like the first one to admit that I don't think doctors and my lovely OB colleagues, everyone is great at having recognized that this is possible. Um, Again, maybe better about recognizing it when it's traumatic, but also not all the time. Something that can be very triggering for someone who has struggling with birth trauma is the, you know, healthy mom, healthy baby. Like the fact that everything did end up okay, doesn't make the experience of it not traumatic. And I have been guilty of saying that myself to people like, look, everything was great. And I never meant to shrug off somebody's concerns or somebody's distress and not realize it. It was just, I think, and I talk about this a lot too. A lot of times, even though I spend my days and my nights and and my weekends, I spend so much time doing these emergencies and not all of them are routine, but many of them, these emergencies are routine to me. Like this is what I'm trained to do. Mm -hmm. This is what I do well. Some of them are more severe than others. I, there are times like when things are happening really fast, I'm kind of going through that trauma with patients too. Like I have birth trauma as a provider Mm -hmm. thinking about what some of my patients and I have been through together. And so I think that coming down from some of those situations, a provider saying like, well, everything worked out great. It's their, some of their relief or some of their stress showing. And I, I don't feel like in my training, we were talking enough about birth trauma, especially because it's something that can present like a lot of people were like, wow, I'm glad that went well on postpartum day one and two. And then, you know, four months later, they're like, I can't stop thinking about the fact that this happened. What did I do to cause it? Did I do anything? Was there something else that could have been done in the moment? Was something missed by my care team? And it's totally okay that 
that it takes a while for that to present. I just think it is missed by providers. And I, I love my fellow OBGYNs. I think that OBGYNs are wonderful and I have so many wonderful colleagues, but certainly not perfect. And as we evolve as a society, centering pregnant people in the birth experience more, because sometimes that person is not the person centered. Sometimes it's the fetus or yeah. the baby that's centered yeah. in the birth experience, honestly. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. So, and of course the mothers want their babies to be well, but again, that like, oh, well, everything worked out fine. Look, healthy baby. One, not always completely healthy. Sometimes, you know, with the pediatricians and getting care, but will be healthy. But mm-hmm. even when the baby is totally fine, it's like, it doesn't mean you didn't go through something crazy to get there. Right. Or even just something you didn't expect and didn't want and is a disappointment. And, and that feels really upsetting because again, we went from a time when, you know, Queen Victoria didn't want to get pregnant because she didn't want to die. And anything that was not dying was a good outcome to the flip side where we see a total glamorization of birth on social media. I mean, seeing people's birth videos makes me angry almost because like the only people who put that stuff up are people who had a completely, were lucky, not because they did anything better than anyone else to have a complication-free experience. And also they're edited, right? They're taking out the things that aren't glamorous or don't look easy or like those posts I always love those 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 photos <laughs> this always gets me is the photos like right after well you know whatever hours day after where you know mom's holding baby and they're so done up and then so I, I think it was last year or the year before where I was like you know what I am putting this picture up it is the most awful picture of me that's ever been taken in the history of ever <laughs> <laughs> and it's like post birth. I have yes. um, a grinder in my hand, and I'm just like probably drooling on myself. My eyes are half open, and I look horrific. And I'm like, I just tackled birth, okay? Yeah. And then I see other people, and I'm like, oh shoot, shit! I think I did it wrong. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit! I'm supposed to look like that, and it really frustrates me because. I mean, what the heck are we doing here? Like getting hair done and makeup on and everything ready to birth a baby girlfriend. This is like, I mean, if it makes you feel great, I think that's great. It's just, it's really hard when it's, when it's showcasted on social media as like the normal, like good thing to do. You know, I mean, it's just so hard. And especially too, like, like we're talking about birth trauma and like not expecting certain things. Like you could go to your OB like I did and all of a sudden you're birthing your baby because you didn't yeah. know, of, of a complication you didn't know was going to arise and you didn't have time to shave and do all these things and, and prepare. Oh my God, Lindsay, I was shocked. My water broke at 34 weeks and I didn't think it had. So I went to my doctor and she was like, I, I was like, well, you need to check. And you know, she checked and she was like, it did. And my doctor was my good friend who I trained with, who I love. And she was able to anticipate. She was like, I know right now you're thinking, you're in denial, but your first thought is no, Sarah, (laughs) that didn't happen. And you're going to negotiate with me, but you're actually not because I'm your doctor and you're going to the hospital. And I was like, Oh, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I bet your thought was like, Oh my gosh, wait, I have all these things I was supposed to do and prepare for and get ready and all this stuff. And you just don't have that. You're a shift worker. I'm a shift worker. And I had worked, I had traded into all these shifts. I had worked so many weeks straight and weekends and everything. And then I was going to only work like one out of the next four weeks leading up to like my 39 week induction. And so to go, literally I spent, I came off 
like night shifts. I spent one night in my bed and then I broke my water. And my first thought was, my first thought was, I don't want to spend another night at the hospital. I've been spending a lot of nights in the hospital recently. And then my second thought was I worked like through Thanksgiving. I worked a lot Thanksgiving week and didn't have time off. And it was, you know, the week before Christmas. And I was like, and I have to spend another holiday in the hospital. Oh my gosh. Anyway. So yeah, I'm right there with the unexpected doctor's visit that resulted in a Right, right. And so I think and the the problem too, though, with, with social media, and kind of just touching on this again, because I think it's so important, and I've been really advocating for just like more talk. I think social media has really great things about it. I, I think it's great for education and and doing some really cool things, like making people feel like they're not alone, especially during COVID and all of that. But also, like if that was you, if that was you where you your water broke at 34 weeks and you got rushed in and you didn't have time to get ready and then you go on social media and you see this picture perfect mom who just gave birth, who probably had a couple hours to get ready beforehand and get everything prepared. And it makes you feel like shit. And it, it's not like done on purpose. Obviously that person didn't do that on purpose, but it's just... An unfortunate thing that happens when we're scrolling and that's all we see. And so I'm just such a huge advocate for posting shitty pictures and real life because it's just, I just cannot emphasize enough that life is just not like that. If people are comfortable with it, sharing what didn't go wrong for them or didn't go right for them, sorry, like, or, or, or something that kind of felt disappointing so that you know that other people have been through something that they didn't plan and didn't go perfectly. Like, I think a lot of what was easier on me having a complication in a preterm delivery was the fact that I take care of, I take care of the unexpected every single day. Like truly a minority of what I do is someone who has some, like an, un, in hindsight, an uncomplicated pregnancy mm-hmm. and delivery. Like I definitely have those patients, but it's not nearly as common. It's not most of what I do. You know, it's, I think what helped me is that I, I don't see just the social media experience of someone having a baby. I have, I'm in the nitty gritty of people having babies all the time. So like experiencing that was like, well, you know, a lot of it's like, you know, you think OB provider luck too, you know, medical provider luck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bad things happen. I decided to break today's podcast episode with Dr. Marta Perez into two different sections. If you want to listen to the rest of the Q&A session, you can listen to that over on my Patreon community group, which includes extra podcast episodes as well as some other exclusive content. Some of the questions that we answer over there include, is it too risky to try for another baby after having complications? What are the things that we should be vigilant about when getting pregnant over the age of 35? How could a placental abruption during labor affect future pregnancy? I had preeclampsia during my first pregnancy and I am scared to have it again. Do you have any advice? What could cause abnormal hormonal levels on a quad screening? And what is a quad screening? How worried should I be if I have a uterine fibroid during pregnancy? What are some possible epidural complications and how common are they? And finally, does perineal massage reduce your risk of tearing? If so, how early on in the birth process should you do this? So I'm going to do the last two questions, which are the two questions that I ask all my interviewees. And the first question is, if you could give moms one tip, it can be about anything at all, what would it be? You are the perfect mom for your baby. Your parent intuition 
is wonderful and you don't need to compare yourself or your child to anyone else. People raise children with very few resources and have wonderful children and families. So reassurance and just using intuition and knowing that you're the perfect mom for your baby. That's my biggest 100%. I love it. And then the second question is, what is your absolute number one favorite meal to make for your family? Oh, I really Mm, like cooking. I know. This is a good one. Uh, Wow, so much to choose from. It's like that go-to meal that's like pretty easy and that you guys just all really love. I throw a baking sheet with like salmon, which is olive oil, salt, and pepper and broccoli. And I like to make the broccoli just a little bit burnt where it's crunchy. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, it takes so short of a time and yeah, it's no, like, I think so delicious easy. and healthy. Now, am I healthy all the time? Absolutely not. I love, you know, quote unquote unhealthy meals. I know food rules, but that's like my go-to. It's so simple. Throw it in the oven, take it out and it's delicious meal. I certainly make like bigger and more complicated recipes and stuff, but that's like one of my easiest, like it's been a crazy day, throw it in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go to. Yeah. Salmon, I feel like is just one of those things where it's like super easy to make. It's healthy. And honestly, my kids love salmon. I'm like, it's one of those things where I'm like, you guys like this? And they're like, yeah, I love it. Yeah. And it's it's actually really mild taste wise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many different ways you can make it too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marta, for this was joining awesome. us and educating. And I think, you know, as I was talking with Dr. Patel before this, I was like, knowledge is power. And I feel like just knowing, you know, all these things that we talked about today is just empowering women to make the right decisions for their family and for themselves. So this was great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.